It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is our weekly show where we bring together award-winning journalists from all over the East End to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the week's headlines. Uh, with me is, my, I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. Uh, we publish the uh, Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website 27east.com. With me is uh, my co-host, Bill Sutton, who's managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Bill. And we, we have our veteran panel today. This is, we have Steve Wick, who's executive editor of the Times Review Media Group. Hey, Steve. Good morning, everyone. Uh, we have Denise Civiletti, who's the editor of RiverheadLocal.com. Good morning, Denise. Good morning. And Beth Young, who's the editor of the East End Beacon, which uh, I'm told this morning is celebrating its fifth anniversary. Congratulations, Beth. Thanks, Jeff. That's good news. That it's good, good to news. see an, another voice on the East End. We have plenty of room. There's room for all of us. So um, I wanted to start off, Steve, by talking a little bit about uh, some of the coverage you've given uh, in the last week or so to the Ukrainian community in Riverhead and the response to the events uh, that are happening overseas. Uh, I'm always struck by how there isn't anything happening globally that doesn't have a local connection. Yeah. But but the the Ukrainian conflict, uh, the Ukrainian community in Riverhead is is a fairly sizable one, right? Yeah, several things um, got me started on it on Thursday, which I think was the first day. I guess it was Wednesday night there and Thursday morning here or the other way around. But um, the Polish church in Kachog, Ostrobama, I talked to that priest and I talked to the Polish priest at St. Agnes in Greenport. And then Saturday night, last Saturday night, the five o'clock mass in Matatuk uh, was conducted by that Polish priest from Ostrobama. His English is very halting, but um, I was sitting there listening to him, Joe, and he did his best not to, he did his best to control his emotions, but he went through this litany of refugees that his family members live near the Ukrainian border, which, and every town is now absolutely jammed with women and young children. Um, the uh, congregation was just dead silent while he talked. And then Sunday morning, I went to uh, the mass at the Ukrainian church and then went back went Monday as well. And then the rally was at noon on Monday in Riverhead at town hall there. And I was just, I guess I never knew that there was such a sizable community of not just Ukrainian descended people, but Ukrainian speakers. Um, mm -hmm. There was well more than 100 people at the rally. And I would say half of them um, were speaking Ukrainian. Um, some got very emotional. Um, I talked to a woman through a translator who um, had gotten out just a couple of weeks ago, gotten into mm. Poland, got a train to Warsaw, got a flight to Istanbul, got a flight to New York and ended up with her back with her family in Riverhead. Wow. Um, and and this, this thing just keeps unfolding. I'm just going to uh, right after I talk to you guys, I have an appointment in Riverhead. And after that, I'm going to go back to that church and just talk to people again to try to get the stories of people watching this massive, massive war going on. Yeah, and, and I believe on Friday, uh, the the new word is that there's more than a million refugees have left Ukraine, uh, I think mostly for Poland, but but for a lot of different countries um, surrounding. And, and I know uh, the United States is, is gonna welcome some folks as well, but uh, I believe part of the, the agreement that they've they put in place in the last couple of days was to open up some humanitarian routes 
to let people leave, to let citizens get out. Um, Denise, I, I think from all accounts, this isn't going to get any better. I, I know Emmanuel Macron, the, the president of France, had had a conversation with Vladimir Putin and came out of it saying that he thinks the worst is probably yet to come here. There isn't a whole lot of hope right now, right? There absolutely is not. And uh, justifiably, I don't think there's a lot of hope. Um, I don't know. I don't really know where this goes. I mean, you know, what are Putin's options, really? Um, uh, you know, I, I think he's in a corner and that's very, very troublesome. Um, but, you know, as you said, all of the events on the world stage, you know, everything is local, you know, in one way or another, as Steve is pointing out. I mean, you know, we have so many different ethnic groups just in our little town of Riverhead. I mean, you know, the, the we've got this sizable Ukrainian community, which extends into well into the North Fork also. Um, yeah. And and then, you know, of course, we've got the Polish community here. That's a very large, strong community. We've got um, Lithuanian groups of Lithuanians. We've got a, a, a fairly sizable Russian community here in Riverhead also. Um, so, uh, you know, it's it's from that perspective, it's really kind of interesting how, you know, one little town could be, a, you know, kind of a microcosm of, uh, you know, yeah. Eastern Europe uh, on on any given day. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I don't even know what to say about this. I mean, you know, your heart goes out to these people um, and all you could do is pray and, and donate and, you know, hope for the best. I don't know. Um, but, the, word last, the word last night that they actually struck the, uh, a nuclear power. Yeah. 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 There was a fire. There was a fire there, too. There was a fire yeah. there. Now, this morning it said that the fire is under control and, and no radiation leak. But again, it just brings up sort of what you were saying, Denise, is where does this go yeah. from here? Yeah. It just yeah. gets worse every day. The refugee crisis is the biggest since, you know, 1945. Uh, you see these young children being packed into trains with their teddy bears and their puppies. And, yeah. uh, you know, what 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 do we do here? How do we stop this? And, and, and I think it was the foreign minister, the Russian foreign minister yesterday said in pretty ominous words that he said World War Three will be a nuclear war. So oh. if we were to go in there, declare a no fly zone and start shooting down their planes, I guess it would go quickly into tactical nuclear weapons, and you can which is which is why I think ever yeah. the the West is taking a very careful approach and focused on on uh, economic sanctions and and taking that kind of an interesting story in in, in the Times that, that talked about you know in, um, diplomatic officials looking at at Putin who who they're saying now they're they're worried that. That his mental state that when you put him in a corner, as Denise said, that he's just going to double down and he's just going to come out stronger. And they're worried about attacks on other countries in Europe. And, you know, all these economic sanctions are having an effect, but maybe not the desired effect. And they're just they're You know, this could could make make this war worse. And it's just so scary. Such a scary prospect. Yeah, but, you know, you know, we, we talk about all news, you know, international news having the local connection. Yeah, it, it, the, the next that. question 
to, to Beth is, you know, what, how do local communities deal with an international crisis like this? I mean, the, the best you can do is to get the, together and offer prayers and you can, uh, you can have rallies yeah. like the one we saw in Riverhead. Uh, you can send, you can send aid, but it, the challenge is to find a way locally to do something meaningful that connects you to that crisis. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm I'm visiting right now with my my uncle and his wife, who's from Poland, and she has a lot of family in Ukraine, and and she really feels like individually helping people who um, with specific needs is is something that she, that she seems to think is most effective, and that's something you can do when you when you talk to people, and and because there are so many people who are affected. I mean, everyone I spoke with at that rally on Monday. I had family in Kiev, and so many of them were also saying, you know, they, I mean, they understand the whole argument against the no-fly zone, but emotionally, it's it's hard to justify it. I mean, yeah, when they say to you, well, right, Beth? Yeah, well, yeah, why won't you cover our? Why sky? won't you stop this? No. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah, but that's interesting, Steve. That that the idea of small gestures, helping one or two people, helping, you know, that's, that might be, if, if everybody's able to do that, that is a meaningful way to respond to a crisis. Well, after the rally on Monday that, that Beth and I were at, uh, I went over, I went back to the, um, actually Joe Workmeister went back to the Ukrainian church just to get some pictures. And he said the lobby was just filled. It's a very tiny church, but just bags of things. Yeah. And I noticed on the church's website last night that they're they said please no more. We're, we're yeah, Father to- Heads called oh. it, you know, called it off. Yeah, and he, well, he said, we got to get this stuff here there first, and we're doing the best we can. Yeah. You can also just- can we can we can we mention um, Nassau County Executive um, Bruce Blakeman and his effort to have people send guns to uh, to the Ukraine and, and made a deal with a gun store in, in Nassau County that you can go in and you can buy long guns and they're going to try to figure out how to ship them over to Ukraine. Well, while I think that's well intentioned, I just I just wonder about um Logistics. I wonder about that. And you know, it's creative. I'll say that. That, That's a creative uh, answer. Steve, when you're talking to people and 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 Beth, the people who have family back there, you know, I'm curious what their take is on on the crisis. Beth, you said that um, you know, there's this feeling of of understanding the situation that that for the West to intervene in a military sense could be you know, a difficult thing to do. But yeah, it's got to be really frustrating um, because Ukraine does feel sort of like a sitting duck now, um, yeah. at least well, militarily. And, and that's got to be so tough for families here. Yeah, well, a lot of a lot of people were saying Ukraine back in, I guess, 1994, gave up all of its nuclear weapons in, in exchange for a promise that their sovereignty would be protected. It's um, called the, the Budapest Agreement, I believe. And um, and a lot of the people I was speaking with were like, we, we, we've put all of our faith in the Budapest Agreement for two decades now, and we we thought we were covered here. And, um, and this betrayed. is something you don't really hear. Yeah, they feel very um, much betrayed. I mean, Father Hess, when you when you go sit yeah. with him, and talk to him, you know, he, he was talking to his mother the other day when I was there, when I got there to the rectory, and, and parents are there, yeah. And his mother, he basically she has a visa to come here if, if she could. But she won't go. She said, I'm going to be here no matter what they do to us. But mm. none, of them, none of them can fathom allowing apartment buildings to be bombed, entire neighborhoods to be destroyed, schools to be destroyed. They're like, are you going to stop this? Yeah. 
And yet we have these larger geopolitical interests that it could even get worse. But what if they what if they go into Poland? I mean, Father Hetz will tell you flat out, they won't stop here. This is not going, they're not going to stop here. A lot of people say that. And, and what, I mean, it, it sounds like what, what NATO members have said is that, you know, NATO is you touch one, you touch all and right. we all get involved. And, um, I, you know, I mean, that that sort of is like a permission slip, really, to Putin to um, do whatever he wants in a non-NATO country. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. you know, we're saying yeah, we, other than these sanctions and other than supplying them with weapons and equipment, um, you know, we're we're it's hands off. So, yeah, so um, it'll take some time to do whatever he wants. Yeah. It, it'll take some time for the sanctions to work. Um, you think that after a couple of weeks, and I think President Biden said that the other night in the State of the Union address, give it a month. Of course, a month, a lot can happen uh, on the ground in Ukraine. And, and I have to point out the other thing that that I'm not the first one to say it, but China is certainly watching this in Taiwan. Uh, there's a very similar circumstance there. And you have to wonder, uh, the West's response to this is going to inform the way China looks at that situation moving forward, too. This is just such a crucial moment in in world history uh, that we're living through. I, after having lived through a crucial moment with the pandemic, uh, it's just a lot, isn't it? It's a lot to take in, and, and uh, uh, I think we're all sort of walking wounded at this point. And I, I really find it so offensive that there's so many people, whether they be pundits or politicians who um, don't feel any responsibility to show some sort of unity here in behind, backing, you know, the policy of our And not that it shouldn't, you know, there's no room for criticism or anything like that. But when, you know, you have, you know, people like Tucker Carlson saying, you know, it's not that there. It's not that Putin is so smart. It's that Biden is so dumb, and right. saying things like that. Um, and you know, I I listened to um, the former president's um, hour long tirade at the CPAC last last week, um, and you know, similar things coming from him. It just it's astounding to me that that is. is happening, and um and and really offensive, and it's not. You know, I'm not a particular fan of the incumbent president necessarily, but like, you know, this is not the time for like the the Absolutely. immediate past president and other people to be, you know, excoriating him over this. Um, in our, you in know, our, in our editorial <laughs> yesterday, if you recall, if you recall a little history that in the late 1930s, Lindbergh was going around America praising Hitler, mm -hmm. praising right. the Nazis blaming the Jews for everything, saying they're going to get us into a war. And that's the only thing you can kind of hark back to in this country where you had prom a prominent American in that case being pro-German. But as Denise points out, this is a former president yeah. now talking this way. They, they gave a round of applause at that conservative thing in Florida last week. Let's give a round of applause to Russia and people clap. They were and I think we, we made the point in our we had an editorial this week as well, Stephen. We made the point that there's a certain clarity this all brings. You know, this has been lurking in the background for years now. Uh, the, the rising right wing 
extreme right wing movement in the United States. And I think with so many people, I mean, I, I, the vast majority of both Republicans and Democrats are fully in support of Ukraine. This brings a moment of clarity and it starts to shine a spotlight on the extremists and I think puts them in a different light. And as you say, I mean, let's look at how history judges Charles Lindbergh, uh, you know, for his position then. I think it starts to it starts to bring a different context. And, and those people are not mainstream any longer. They're very clearly outside the mainstream. I'd like and, to know, though, do you, does anyone think that the just the sheer horror and brutality going on, could that begin to sort of unravel the Trump wing of the Republican Party? Could they now begin to, to think, God, these people have to shut up. They're, 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 they're crazy. I mean, does, does this in some way end their nuttiness or does it only get worse? Oh, it gets worse. <laughs> That's you were going to say yeah, something. Because, uh, because, yeah, go ahead, Beth. Uh, no, well, I mean, Putin's been feeding this from, from the beginning. It's part of his plan. And, That's true. Uh, and, and it's also true that Putin has kept his own people in the dark about what's going yeah. on in Ukraine. And, and when they when those soldiers end up in Ukraine and they see the truth on the ground, they feel betrayed by their government. And that can't be discounted. Down arms. Yeah. yeah, that can, can't be discounted. Yeah. Bill, I'm sorry you were going to say. No, no, I just just it. it um, I, I, I don't see any end to, to the divisiveness and, in, in, you know, in, in this country. And, it, and it's. You know, it, it's fed by by rumors and lies and 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 all that, and and I don't see that that ending. And you know, Tucker Carlson is just evidence of that. And um, you know, it just it just continues on. I mean, I like Best point too that um, you know that a lot of that is you know can can be traced back to social media, and who we you know we knows we know whose fingers have been involved in social media. So, and, and keep in mind, of course, Trump was impeached over withholding aid to Ukraine. Yeah. So you can see that Putin probably looked at that and then looks at the speeches last week in Florida and thinks that the sizable American community, including a former president, are quietly rooting him on mm -hmm. in spite of the violence, in spite of the death, yeah. in spite of children losing their parents. It's just, I don't know of a moment like this in my lifetime. It's a complicated Great. situation that led to this. But certainly, I think there, there isn't a whole lot of complication about what's happening. It was naked aggression and a country that's that's really being victimized. And it, it uh, I think you find out about the character of people based on which side they choose in a fight like that. So, and then, and then you go back and say to yourself, one last point on this, Joe, that somehow in 2016, Hillary Clinton lost the presidential race to Donald Trump. I still cannot believe that that happened, but she lost to Donald Trump, and here we are. And Russia had nothing to do with that, of course. <laughs> <laughs> this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. Uh, I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. Uh, my co-host is Bill Sutton, managing, managing editor of the Express News Group. And with us today are Steve Wick of the Times Review Media Group, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, and Denise Civiletti of RiverheadLocal.com. So let's talk about politics and, you know, there's a little bit of a bleed over here because uh, the Republican Party in New York State pretty overwhelmingly, I believe unanimously, uh, chose Lee Zeldin for their uh, their their uh, governor, their candidate for governor. Uh, 
he is the first district congressman, uh, represents the East End as it's currently configured. Uh, and Steve, you know, when we talk about a guy who uh, this is a guy who's been aligned with with Donald Trump uh, for years, and he is now the Republican candidate in New York state. And I think the Republicans uh, feel like they've got an outside chance in a midterm election to, to take a real run at it. And, you know, in the last time when a Republican represented New York state in Albany as the governor, it was George Pataki, who was very much a moderate uh, Republican. Uh, Lee Zeldin is not a moderate Republican. What, what, what do you think his chances are? Well, I, there are people on the North Fork who Republican people I, I talk to all the time who, who think he can win. They don't like him, but they think he can win. I think they think that because in November you saw Nassau County, most of Suffolk County, up, you saw the place kind of turn red. So I, I, I think what Zeldin is hoping for is that that, that mood, that, that base will stay there. And part of me thinks that it'll begin to start to crack over just the, the horror you see on your television screen every time you turn it on. And the fact that, that Zeldin himself, after the violent insurrection of January 6th, Zeldin himself voted not to accept the Electoral College vote in two states, Arizona and Pennsylvania. So I think it's, I, I don't see how he avoids as this mess just gets worse and worse and worse, I don't see how he avoids being painted with that big brush. And I would think that would hurt him, but he, he seems to be running from him. I, I send questions to his office every single week and get nothing back. Uh, they, he's, yeah, written, Denise, he's written you off, Joe. Um, yeah, Denise, let's, let's talk about this. I mean, part of my, my uh, it's frustrating for me as a newspaper editor, uh, two things. First of all, I think Lee Zeldin's done, uh, you know, as Steve said, he's run away from January 6th. And I think he, he, it happened again this week. He was asked about it and he said, people here are more concerned about the economy than that. And I think that's probably the smart tactic for him. But Lee Zeldin has never answered questions about his motivation on January 6th. And I have to say, and I think I speak for all of us here, he has made himself entirely unavailable, period, to the media in the first district. We have not been able to interview Lee Zeldin on any topic for months. And for, for our newspaper, it's since January 6th, when he objected to our coverage of, of, of the, way, the way that went down. Um, Denise, this is, this is problematic to me that, that at a statewide level, we have a candidate who's running who's just controlling the narrative by shutting down the media entirely. We, we have all been just shut out. Yeah, I think that um, Zeldin, you know, and unfortunately he's not alone in this, but like, you know, wants to be on friendly media on television um, where he's not going to be asked um, questions he's uncomfortable with that he doesn't necessarily want to answer. Um, and, um, it, you know, that's his playbook. I think, you know, we see that over and over again when you request, you know, an interview, when you, you know, ask for answers to questions, you get canned responses from uh, political aides and, um, you know, spokespersons. It's extremely frustrating, um, but clearly that's going to be his playbook. And I think that complaining about it is the right thing to do, complaining about it publicly, um, as you have you done, win? editorialized about. Can you win with a strategy like that, Denise, at the state level? 
I mean, can, uh, can, can it, well, I, I'm not sure that New York State is the best place in the world to try that strategy. Well, I mean, it's a, the media market here is intense. And um, certainly, I think, you know, on a statewide level, there are, you know, bigger media than us that he's going to have to reckon with. Mm-hmm. Um, print media, you know, I mean, there's, I, I just feel like there's just such a big difference between the print media and um, TV media, you know, TV journalism that um, he's 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 going to have to come out of his comfort zone of, you know, Fox appearances. I think I think that's, you know, inevitable. Let's let's not forget, too, that 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 base of his supporters, that pro-Trump base, they, they don't like or trust the media much. To, to begin with, Joe. So, so, you know, is, are, are they, are they looking to the, to, to the Southampton press news review Riverhead local for, no. you know, for, for coverage of, of Lee Zelda? No, they're not going to, they're, you know, they, they may not believe what they read anyway. And, and I think he doesn't, that's, is there a, he doesn't is that feel big enough though to win. I look, I, I've it's said this. All of upstate, maybe. I don't know. It's, I, it's, I, he's I, spending a lot of time upstate, which I, is I, not where the people are, but. I, I've, I've everybody's that, long thought that oh, I'm sorry, Bill, but like I just right. everybody has long thought that like you know the only way for a Republican to win New York is to be moderate enough to pick off New York City voters, right? I mean that's been the you know the mantra forever, you know, and certainly that's what Pataki did. I don't, you know, Zeldin to me has not been that candidate and has okay. not been that kind of elected representative, clearly. But so, is it but is it a different time now? I mean, you know, back back to Pataki, that was just a different time. And yeah. you know, I've said this in previous discussions about about Lee Zeldin. This this is going to be during the midterm election when you're going to have all those Trump voters show up because they want to change the makeup of, you know, of of Congress, of the House and the Senate. You're going to have them. It, it's all going to be who can get out the vote. And, and if you have all those Trump supporters that showed up, you know, and during the last presidential election, because it's a midterm election, um, he, he gets those votes regardless. You know, I mean, people are people aren't those Republicans aren't going to show up and and vote on, you know, national elections, you know, Congress seats and, and whatever and not vote for Lee Zeldin. Um, because he's on the Republican ticket and they're going to vote that Republican ticket, uh, you know, across the line. And and I think that's going to happen across the entire state. If, you know, um, and, and, and how, that bodes, and how are that bodes well for Zelda. Motivate? How are Democrats going to motivate their voters? I mean, you know, Ken Hochul be that candidate to motivate voters to yeah. go to the polls this November. I mean, uh, Tom Swazi is very busy ma- trying to make the case that she's not that candidate. And he is because he's more moderate. Right. I mean. That's, you know, I'm a common sense Democrat. And, you know, he wants to he his uh, he says, you know, he wants to end the Democrat Democratic Party's drift to the the left, the drift to progressive, the progressive left. Um, so that's his spiel. And I don't you know that I don't I don't think he stands a chance in the primary. I I, yeah. I don't know. But, um, you know, but, is Hochul going to be the motivator is but you know, I, how but much. I, but I think that's my point is people aren't coming. Yeah. I, I think, look, a, lot, a large portion of people are coming coming out to vote for for the governor election. But but I think a lot of people aren't coming out that that's not the motivation to vote is, is for who the governor is. The motivation to vote is going to be in, in other races. And you're going to see that that um, trickle down to to the governor's race. But, I, I, but the New York governor race, this must always be in the off 
in the midterm year, yeah, right? It, it yeah. is. And, so, and, and so, the overwhelming uh, urban vote that tends to be very strongly Democrat is just very difficult for a statewide candidate to overcome. But Beth, I wanted to go to go back to Lee Zeldin for a second and, and add some context that this behavior of ghosting all of us since January 6th is really not typical. He was actually a very engaging congressman with all of the local media. And I have to say, our newspaper group never endorsed Lee a single time that he ran for office. But I regularly met with Lee. I had breakfasts with Lee. Uh, We exchanged emails and private emails uh, about different issues. We didn't agree on a lot of stuff, but we had very respectful exchanges. And and I thought, and, and um, he never he never got the endorsement, but he kept showing up for the endorsement. He did. And, and, and even and, joked at, at the time and answered those the tough questions. Absolutely. At, at yeah. the and, time. and I had a great deal of respect for Lee Zeldin, um, even though I disagreed with him on on a whole lot of issues. Um, he certainly came under criticism from time to time. But we never saw this level of contempt for the local media, which which is what it feels like. It feels like I don't need you anymore. And I hasten to say he is still our representative in Congress from the first district. And and we aren't able to ask him, you know, as as Steve said, we can't ask him his position on Ukraine. I mean, he has been in he has been aligned with Steve Bannon for years. He's been very close with Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon has been pro-Putin from the beginning on this. I'd like to know from Lee Zeldin. I think his position is a little more nuanced. You know, he has publicly been very anti-Russia. He's Mm -hmm. taken some very strongly. Oh, he's very vocal on foreign policy. Yeah. Yeah. But I would, but Beth, I'd love to hear more from Lee Zeldin about his, his position on some of the complications of this issue. But we, we, it's not just the local media that he's been ghosting. I mean, he's been ghosting the public. And, and it started in January 2017 when Trump took office, when people were coming to his office wanting to talk to him. And he, he stopped holding town halls at, the, right. at that time. He stopped showing up for, for public appearances. You know, um, I went to several things where he was expected to be there and the organizers um so we really wish we could hear from our congressman here today. And, and then I get, you know, people from his press office calling me saying, why did you quote a member of the public saying they wanted to hear from their congressman? And it's like, <laughs> because they said that <laughs> and it's important and yeah. relevant. Well, yeah. So there's there's been a disconnect for a long time. Um, and, my- and, you know, he's 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 a military man and he's he's has marching orders and he's following them. And I, I want to know who's at this point, who's giving those orders. And Steve, I just wonder that this strategy is, is just not going to work on a state level. Yeah. I just think it's, I think it can be done to, to we local media, but I think Lee Zeldin's not going to be able to ghost the New York times. And he's going to have to come out and talk about this, but on one other slightly different vein, I was talking to a prominent Jewish man in Southold the other day who raised something I hadn't really thought about before that. He said, this man, from his perspective, he's saying Zeldin plays with a group of people who historically speaking will turn on him for being Jewish. 
He's in this sandbox with people who mouth anti-Semitic things. We heard it just last week in Florida. And he's he's kind of playing with them. And this this man I was talking to just last week was saying, Steve, does he not understand history? This is the crowd that will turn on him because of who he is and what he is. And that's another thing that I find just really puzzling is how you align yourself with people who in their fringe are very much against him. I don't get it. There's nothing that makes sense here to me. It's it's part and parcel with saying that Zelensky is a Nazi. You know, I I mean, all of this stuff is just it's it's designed to confuse us and make us not know where the ground is. Denise, before we leave the topic, let's talk about the first district. Uh, The Republicans uh, in the first and second district, because the new lines have been drawn uh, on the East End and and now we've got we've got a couple of districts to think about. Uh, they made some interesting choices this week. Uh, they had uh, their uh, they, they put up their nominees to replace Lee Zeldin in the first district, also uh, to run in the second district. But that was, that shook out kind of interesting, didn't it? Well, like I said before, you know, we have a, a resident of the second district running in the first district, and now we have a resident of the first district running in the second district um, because you in don't the, have to in, live in the district to run it. In the, in their defense, the lines changed recently. So, it, it I mean, it's, well, it's tricky, but, but it's, you know. I mean, neither one of them, in the, in the, I'm, I'm talking about the Republican side. Neither one of them uh, lived in the other district, you know, before the lines changed. I mean, Nick LaLota has always lived in the second district and um, Cornicelli lives in Mount Sinai. I mean, he's always been in the first district, so. You know, his decision to run in the second district, I think, you know, well, I mean, he he's anti uh, Gabarino um, uh, because he wasn't a good enough uh, Trump Republican. And so he's, you know, interested in taking him on. And, um, you know, I guess he thinks he's got a better shot there. Um, I don't know. I'll be interested to know if Figliola um, stays in now like, or if something is going to you know, he's going to be persuaded otherwise. Um, on the Democratic side, in the Democratic primary, the, there is somebody running who found herself in the first district after the redistricting. And that's uh, Jackie Gordon from um, Babylon, town of Babylon. Anyway, um, so. But yeah, I mean that took that took an interesting turn for sure. <laughs> Which and, and the Democrats in the first district already had Bridget Fleming of Noyak mm-hmm. and uh, Kara Hahn, um, who's who's a very strong challenger. And Bill's made the point previously that she's from the western part of the district where a lot of the votes are, so she has a lot more name recognition out that way. Um, it's just shaping up to be a very interesting off-year election. Yes, uh, I low, totally. Low. Absolutely. <laughs> this is behind the headlines. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry, Bill. Go ahead. I, I just, um, so, so I think it's just it's interesting to me that that the Democrats are, are continuing on a path toward a primary when the redistricting uh, almost guarantees them the first district seat. But you're still going to see three to five Democratic candidates come out and spend uh, millions of dollars in in campaigning for it for this primary and and. Um, I, I don't understand why the Democratic Party can't just corral them together and, and decide who the who the better candidate is going to be. And 
um, you know, and, and focus on, you know, on on the race itself. And I think it's typical of the Democrats. And look, everybody has should have the opportunity to to run. And, and I get that. And, and you don't want to be just always listening to the party bosses and, and stuff. But um, blowing it just, a big opportunity here is what you're saying. Exactly. I, I, get, get behind a candidate yeah. and, and just yeah. take, take that seat. They're not, they're not good at do, being smart. I mean, they're really good at losing elections. And, <laughs> yes. Um, just, the Will Rogers theory. It strikes me circular, that circular, you know, the most circular firing year, squad is yeah. how one person has yeah. described the Democratic yeah. Party. The most critical year for the Congress. And you're going to have this in the first district. I mean, exactly. I, it just they have to just stop this. Just get everybody in a room and say, we really think that so-and-so is the better candidate. Everybody let, else. Them, let them draw straws or something. They're all great candidates. I, I, I had mean, a they conversation really are. with Rich Schaefer about this very subject last week. Uh, I got him on the phone. I'm like, well, you know, why is this happening? What, why are you doing yeah. Well, you know, it's it's not up to the party boss. They should, you know, let the voters decide. He's not. He didn't even have a convention Yeah. to have the committee was, people vote. That was actually one of the uh, complaints about Lelota being picked for the first district by the Republicans is that he had not really uh, interviewed. He was sort of just picked by the party bosses. And that really upset a lot of his fellow candidates for the position. So that's, that's two opposite uh-huh. extremes, opposite yeah. extremes here, you know, <laughs> and we'll see what will prevail. I, yeah, I, I'm, with, I'm with you in your assessment of this, uh, Bill. I don't know. Um, I, Going to be an interesting November. I'll date myself here by saying, where is Dominic Baranello when you need him? (laughs) (laughs) Who remembers him? Anybody? I I definitely remember. He yelled at me more than a few times. Yeah. So this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Denise Civiletti of RiverheadLocal.com, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, and Steve Wick of the Times Review Media Group. Beth, um, the conversation on the North Fork um, lately has been about affordable housing, right? And I mean, that's been a big topic of conversation for years, and uh, it's coming to a bit of a head on the North Fork right now. Um, yeah. Um, uh, well, there's so much going on with the efforts to get the um, referendums in place for the community housing fund um, everywhere. Um, but uh, there are a couple of projects on the North Fork. They're both in, in the hamlet of Kutchog that have been pitched lately. Um, one is 24 units on the North Road, which is the divided highway that goes out to Orient. Um, and another one is on Depot Lane in Kutchog, which is a uh, it's a street. It's got it's got a lot of mixed uses on it. It's mostly farmland and a few houses and a little bit of industrial land. Um, and they're not very big, but um, they're really um, uh, causing a lot of discussion in town government um, in terms of the future of housing on the North Fork. There was a project in Greenport that got off the ground a couple of years back. Um, called Vineyard View. I think, Steve, was that about 50 yeah. units? Vineyard View, yeah, in Greenport on the North Road as well. Yeah, and um, and that one, they uh, they did they um, missed a batch of applications for the lottery the first time they were um, uh, signing the housing. So they had to redo the lottery, and they ended up like only 23% of the people who ended up getting a seat in the lottery actually lived in South Hole. So mm. that's created a lot of conflict in the community just yeah. about like, how to make this work 
for people um, who are already living or are actually just I think, perhaps not even able to live here anymore. Yeah, I think Beth, you hit on the, the sorest point of this whole discussion. It kind of came out at the town board meeting when Scott Russell made the point that he really couldn't, I'm sort of making up his, his words, but he said, I can't look people in the eye here and say, we're going to do affordable housing if you can't live here. And yet you can't guarantee it. Um, we've had a story on it. And we there's a letter in yesterday's Suffolk Times, you'll see from Mitch Paley, the Long Island, Long Island Builders Institute saying, the fair housing laws say you cannot in any way designate who this is for. So then you have people in Southold saying, well, wait, we're going to give up open space for affordable housing, which we want to do, but we want it just for our people. Why are we yeah. giving up open space so someone from Dix Hills can live here? Yeah. Um, it's an emotional debate, and it's only going to get more difficult if there are lawsuits that are brought to shut the whole damn thing down. But, but Steve, is that a fair position because when we've talked with the, the affordable housing folks, the, the people who do this for a living, for instance, for Southampton Town, they've said that this is true. The, the, the rules say that you cannot limit access to affordable housing, that, that, that yes, theoretically, somebody from Reno, Nevada can decide to move to the South Fork and, or the North Fork and take one of these apartments. But that's not what's happening. The, the, the waiting lists for affordable housing are about 95% local people or people within the people who live, live or work locally and want to be closer to where they work. This is, this is kind of a, a red herring, isn't it? Well, the people that want local housing for affordable housing for local people want it to be 100%. And it's clearly not, as Beth points out, Vineyard View is, is definitely not that. I, I don't know where I saw this recently, Joe, but there was a story about a really expensive ski town in Vermont or New Hampshire uh, where you can't get a waiter, you can't get a bartender, you can't get people to run the lifts because no one can live there. They did an affording affordable housing complex and people from Philadelphia, people from New York City, people, people got people won the lottery to live there. And it was a very low number. It was like maybe 10 units. And right. it just frustrated the local people They're like, oh, my God, we did this to keep you here, to keep a fireman here, to keep someone who can work in our industry. And the lottery was won fair and square by people who don't have no, no connection here. So it, it bothers people. But I, I think the prevailing position uh, on a very divided South Old Town board on this is that is your position, Joe, which is that you have to do something. Yeah. I think, too, um, it, it pays to look at the type of affordable housing that's being offered. I think we've seen a difference here in Riverhead um, in terms of how much of um, you know, what the income limits are. We've got one building on Main Street, on West Main Street, that um, is targets low income individuals. And um, the income limits are, there are pretty low. <laughs> and um, that lottery drew a huge response, much, much bigger than the other buildings that you know had um, higher AMI. Uh, thresholds, and uh, um, it, they it, and and people came from all over Long Island for that that one, um, and that was um, you know they got I forget I don't remember exactly I think it was like fifty units or something along those lines, and um, they 
there were 800 people that showed up for that yeah. lottery. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, or 800 that applied. Yeah, it was astounding. To from me. all over, Denise? From all over. And I think it's because, you know, there are not that many housing developments for, you know, that demographic, for that right. income level. And, That's a regional problem. You know. I mean, it's yeah. an yeah. island-wide problem. Yeah. yeah. And frankly, fine. if you work in the service industry, you're you're going to be in that. Yeah. You're going to be in that bracket. Right. And, 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 and wherever I had. kind of work <clears throat> And, and Riverhead, with with everything that it has to offer and a commercial development and all that, I mean, somebody from Dix Hills could pick up and move to Riverhead and have every amenity that they would have had in 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 Dix Hills. I guess. Can you get? Can you weight those lotteries for people who are local volunteer firefighters, ambulance no. workers? There's no way. To, there's no way to, no to way give to them an advantage. It's, huh? it's because of the funding. I mean, these yeah. folks are getting. You know, underwritten by the state and federal governments in way of tax credits and grants and things like that, they they can't you know limit it to one particular locale. Yeah, that's, right. that's why the, one of these ones in Southhold, the one on Deepa Lane, they're not taking grant funding, and 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 so they're saying they they can they can, they're hoping they'll be, they'll be able to have that kind of incentive, but, um, but won't, it won't work. So, yeah. so Denise, this yeah. raises a question. Um, Beth brought up um, right up front that this is all happening as the five East End towns are trying to put plans together to put a referendum before voters this fall uh, for the community housing fund, which would use a real estate transfer tax to generate um, money for affordable housing. And I know that Jay Schneiderman has said if that measure had been in place this past year, a half a percent on, on most real estate transfers, it would have generated something like $20 million for Southampton Town. So my question, um, Denise, because you, you might know um, the legal side of this, if the town is able to provide those grants for these programs, maybe they can target them for local people because they're they're not using federal or state monies. Is that fair or is that still can, a fair know, housing issue? I can't I can't um I, I can't answer that like definitively from a legal perspective. Yeah. I'm sorry. I mean I would think that they'd be on better footing if it's yeah. if it's local funding. It's an interesting I, question. I don't know about the implications of yeah. the fair housing law on that. Like I you know so I, yeah. I, I, mean, I think it's law. a gray area legally yeah, the, and the fair housing yeah. law applies to all housing. It's not just right. housing that's had grants. So, well, but Beth, it, yeah. you touched on that earlier. We, the towns yeah. are, are having to scramble. We had a story. Uh, Southampton Town at least has a plan fairly well done uh, because Diana Weir had put one together before she left the position with the town uh, back when this pa passed the first time and governor, uh, the, the governor vetoed it. Uh, governor Cuomo did. Um, so they're a little bit ahead of the game, but East Hampton Town hasn't even started putting a plan together. Yeah. And, and these plans are the first step leading towards the referendum, right, Beth? Yeah, yeah. And, and Scott South Russell had a letter in our paper. Scott Russell had a letter in our paper last week, if you recall, that he basically said Wheatley Heights turned down an affordable housing project. They rejected it. And, and, and someone from Wheatley Heights applied to live at Vineyard View in Greenport. So his position was, if you don't want it there, why are we doing it here? And and again, it's very emotional. You want to have affordable housing so people can be volunteer firemen, can work in the in service industry. As Beth points out, 
they all qualify in terms of the you know the AMI limits. But do you really want to build a, a, a complex on depot land in Kachog that maybe 50% of it goes to people from out of town? I don't know. I don't know the answer to this. Well, I mean, there's another issue with the out of town thing. I mean, Sag Harbor's putting together their affordable housing plan and people are getting on the Zoom calls about that saying, look, we already left Sag Harbor. We're not there anymore. Is this for us? We still commute there for work. So I, I think I mean, that was so, so when, you know, Joe was was talking about, you know, Southampton officials that we had had a uh, an express sessions about affordable housing at one point, And I think it was Diana Weir that was there and was talking about, um, you know, these these restrictions. And, and and I think maybe Southampton was was a little bit of a different animal. But she was saying that, you know, that I think Joe, Joe said 95 percent of people. They, they, they either already lived in the area or or they worked in the area. So you had people that were living in Dix Hills and commuting to Southampton Hospital. Um, and, and so then that was considered, you know, somebody somebody local coming in. It wasn't right. just somebody out of the blue who wanted to live, you know, um, in, in Tuckahoe, you know, in, in Southampton because it was was affordable. I, I think, you know, maybe Denise, you know, in, in Riverhead, it's, it's a little bit different because I think, you know, you, there's so much different industry in, in Riverhead that people could pick up and move. Yeah. I wonder on North Fork if these I don't know who these people are, but but if people are, are being categorized as being from out of town or why why do they want to come and live on on the north fork unless they have some tie well, already when you, i mean there's no public transportation right yeah. there's no you know I, i've talked to several people who live in there who uh, you know they were desperate and they were glad they want a seat but they have just no, no affordable there. housing on no long power. island and you know there's yeah. just no affordable housing yeah. on long, long island so they're they're entering every lottery they can and getting whatever well, they can get people out here would answer yeah. your question bill by simply saying why is it southhold's problem to solve that for people up west i i, I well I, I agree if that's the case if it's people that have a, a connection that that isn't being recognized i'm wondering then maybe that's a different story but but i agree i agree and i think we're going to start to see the effects of this in a significant way this summer because there's signs of that we're going to see an economic recovery this summer on the the south fork at least um when the hampton springs to life uh without a whole lot of mask mandates uh, and there are going to be very difficult times trying to fill a lot of these service industry positions. Restaurants are already Absolutely. struggling. And, and I think it's going to be a really tricky time for most local businesses. So um, let me let me give it. We only have a couple of minutes left. And, and Denise, I have to ask you about a story you wrote about, because it doesn't seem like news to me. I, the superintendent in Riverhead, what did he see a cockroach or something? And so he called in some <laughs> folks to, to to spray his office. That doesn't seem like news. What what what's going on there? Uh, well, the bugs that he had a his office bug. swept for were electronic listening devices. Um, as it's not, unreal. Uh, yeah, it's kind of you know. Um, I don't know what to say. I, I mean, you know, he he. he it was a five thousand dollar expense. They um, did a a security sweep of um, seven offices in the district's uh, main office building. And um, I don't know why, you know, why or what he thought he was going to find. Uh, he would not say whether or not he anything was found. He, he would not answer that question. 
Um, he just said, well, uh, let me just say that uh, when, after that was done, uh, the, the, uh, the district uh, was, was very secure. But meanwhile, two months after that, they suffered a cyber attack that put all of their systems down. So I don't know how secure it was. But, but you but, made a, you made an interesting point, Denise, in, in your in your coverage, where you said that if there were bugs found or a bug found, that that, right. that would be a crime. And, it would and be a that crime. If they're not if they're not reporting that, then they're not reporting a crime. I would think they'd have a, a duty to report the crime to the police, but they did not. I confirmed that with the chief of police. There was no report made about any. Um, listening devices. So I don't know where he got this bug, uh, whatever part of his anatomy <laughs> that, that somebody was doing this. Uh, uh, the police chief said it's actually fairly common. Everybody thinks their office is bugged. He says he hears that from people, you know, in town hall. Wow. Siri listening to you, decades, actually. You know. Let's not lose just how unusual a story that is for a school superintendent. <laughs> just amazing. Well, yeah, I never heard of that before. I really I'd said that I you know. always yeah. there's always something new to find on the local news scene. Because and, and for the reason he gave was because information was being leaked. To who? I, you know, usually that's oh, for wow. you. It, it gets leaked <laughs> to the press, but I, we, you know. It's not getting to you. That's, it needs, we need to get to the right people. No question. It still we, is. We, yeah. well, we are out of time. But not through electronic bugs. Okay. We went right up to the deadline this week. Uh, I want to thank everybody for a, a vigorous conversation this week. Thank you to Steve Wick of the Times Review Media Group. Beth Young of you, East End Beacon and Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local. Thank you guys. You're always entertaining. My pleasure. Good to see everybody. Appreciate We're it. Bye-bye. Take Bill care. Bill Sutton's my co-host. Thank you, Bill. Uh, I will see you back here next week uh, for the Behind the Headlines. Thanks to our listeners and right. our viewers. Bye.